and welcome back to Spotlight 19, the podcast tracking all things Congressional District New York 19. On today's show, we will be kicking off our Tiny Town Hall series. This series will feature our six Democratic candidates for Congress, and each of them will be sitting down with a small group of constituents. It's tiny because our house can only accommodate so many, but also because the attendees are given some homework to do on the candidates so they can ask more critical questions to help us make our decision for the June 26, 2018 primary. The constituent questions will be followed up with another interview by Saja. The candidates will be also starting the petition process in March and will need 1,200 signatures to actually get on the June's ballot. Some other shakeups from this week include the announcement of an intention to run for Congress in New York 19 of Diane Neal, an actress of Law & Order fame. We sat down with Diane last weekend and her interview will be coming soon. Before we get started, I just want to quickly review Fazo's votes in the past week and do a short 5 Fast Fazo Facts segment. I'll be solo today, since Saja conducted Gareth's interview back on February 11th. You're listening to Spotlight 19. Before we get into any votes, Fazocast this week, I want to remind listeners that in light of this latest mass shooting in Florida, and our hearts go out to the victims and families affected by it, it's important to remember some of Fazo's previous votes and his co-sponsored bills. While in the New York Assembly, he voted against an assault weapon ban and the gun show loophole. Since he's been in Congress, he voted to allow those who are mentally ill to have firearms. In our last episode, we spoke about Fazo's co-sponsorship of the Concealed Carry Reciprocity Act, which allows those from other states with a concealed carry license to bring their firearms into New York State, even though they're not licensed in New York. Fazo did not just cast a yes vote here, but he pushed for this. So, as I speak, Saja is actually trying to get through to Fazo's Teletown Hall, which was advertised less than 24 hours in advance, to get through to him and um, ask him this very question. So let's hope she gets through. A shout out to Nathaniel Weiss on Twitter, who provided us with some of this information. So this week, we only have two votes to talk about. First, there were a few banking regulation votes cast by FASO. The first was to allow banks with $3 billion in assets to be considered small instead of the current $1 billion. So the Federal Reserve's policies on small banks will apply to banks that are three times the size now. This means the newly included banks might engage in some risky practices and it could lead to default, the same thing that happened in 2008. The second, there was an important vote about Americans with Disabilities Act, or ADA. Fazo voted in favor of a bill that would effectively prevent someone with disabilities or a supporting group from filing a lawsuit against a facility or business that hasn't complied with the ADA. In other words, if a business does not have a ramp and it's stalling to put one in, the bill prevents those with disabilities from filing a lawsuit. 
Fazl refused to disclose how he would be voting on Monday when we called, and also attended a dinner with a disabilities advocacy group over this week, so as usual, the hypocrisy was startling. Fact number one. In 1990, Faso cast the only no vote in an assembly against a bill that would have established a rural education research program that would provide more focus on the improvement of educational services delivered to rural New Yorkers like those here in New York 19. Number two. We talked last week about Pierre Rinfray, a candidate for governor back in 1990, who was a loose-talking New York City millionaire with questionable ethics. Fazo served as his campaign manager briefly. Number three. In 1992, Fazo led the charge to combat gerrymandering and unveiled a Republican redistricting plan, but his plan actually packed minorities and Democrats into districts and consolidated Republican power. Number four. In 1994, Faso voted against a bill that would have provided more educational services like bus transportation for homeless children. Number five. Faso ran for New York State Comptroller in 1994. We move on now to our Tiny Town Hall series. Commencing with a question from our first constituent to Gareth Rhodes. Hi, my name is Dustin Bryant. I am the owner of Planet Woodstock Music, located in Kingston. And I have some questions for Garrett. Thanks, Dustin. When speaking about job growth and helping small businesses, you say on your website you would be for cutting red tape. Can you speak on the specifics or examples of what government red tape you would be cutting and specifically who in the Hudson Valley would benefit? Thanks, Dustin. Thank you for the question. I like that earlier today you asked me about uh, breweries because this is a, I'm going to talk a little bit about breweries in this question. I when I worked in the governor's office in Albany uh, and back in 2000 back in 2011, the the brewery industry and the winery and the d- distillery industry here in the upstate New York was struggling. Uh, New York State used to be one of the biggest growers of hops and barley. None was grown in New York State at the time. You couldn't brew beer and serve food under the same roof. We got the farmers. We got the brewery. Uh, people, we got others in uh, the restaurant industry all in the same room in what we call the uh, beer summit. And we looked at what are the laws that can be reformed and updated to make the industry boom here in the Hudson Valley and in upstate New York. We passed a new uh, uh, craft brewery uh, bill. We passed a farm brewery bill, things that allowed breweries to both ser- now places like Rough Cut, which is out in Kerhonkson, in, in you can both serve food and brew beer under the same roof. Breweries can now have tasting rooms where you can serve, you can, places like Chatham Brewery, you can come in there and have a bite to eat and also try a number of the different, uh, uh, you can sample some of the products. We also, to enable that, you have to use New York State products. The brewery said, well, you know, we can't buy hops, we can't buy New York State barley, there's none here. So that was the whole point, it created demand. So farmers in the area, family farms with huge amounts of unused acreage, could then start renting out and leasing out some of that acreage to allow people to come and grow grow hops, grow barley locally. And that was all through a government law, which or the remo- removal of government laws, which helped just update the industry, make it a little easier. 
And, and if you look at the number of distilleries that have increased using New York State grain in upstate New York, I think it's gone from like seven to over 100. It's been a huge explosion. You can't, I just got a card about, from Emilio, but a new brewery here in Kingston. There is so much new, there is so much, uh, new stuff happening in this industry, and it is because government took the proactive step of getting everyone in the same room, what works, what doesn't, and let's take it from there. So that's, that was the, uh, the spirit of that, I think. So it was more getting out of the way of... Exactly. Or, exactly. Is there anything as a congressperson that you could think of specifically... So you're a musician here in town, or you sell? You sell? Yeah, I sell instruments. I, I deal to many musicians, including Justin. You know, upstate New York is actually the fourth largest music industry in the United. Had the fourth largest music industry in the United States after Nashville, Los Angeles, and New York City. So this is an area where we could pass. I believe we could help um, update some of the copyright laws. We could help. There's things we could do for musicians, which they've been asking for on the federal level for a long time, which could be helpful for I think the this industry up here to, to continue to grow. And so I would want to get the artists in the room with both the producers and various stakeholders and say, hey, how can we continue to build on this strength? Because I think part of when you look at what government should be doing in areas of like economic development is where are we the strongest? Here in upstate New York, we know we have the farms. We know we have the restaurant industry. We know people come here on weekends. So the whole craft brewery thing was, was, was in some ways a natural step. Knowing how big the music industry is here, knowing the number of performing arts centers we have just in this district alone, this is a real strength that we have, and we should capitalize and build on that. And I think by getting everyone in the same room and figuring out how can government do something better or maybe get out of the way, that's how, that's how you can do that. All right. The way things are set up, uh, the hardest jump to make uh, between being lower class to middle class, many people on the border of those two kind of things fear sometimes even getting a slight raise because of losing benefits and and not being able to be uh, or to get what they get at a lower class level. So they fear even growth and moving up. Is there anything you could do as a congressperson that could change that? Let, let me ask you, as a small business owner here in the community, have this been something that you've gone through with your own employees at all or with your... Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's hard for me to even hire employees. As, as far as any, being able to pay them, or I mean, I, I don't have, I, I work for myself. Yes. And it's harder for me to even take a, a paycheck sometimes. Yes. And how do you deal with healthcare as a small employer in the community? I currently do not have healthcare. But I mean, it's something that I, I mean, I've been yes. paying the penalties because I, I can't afford to, to, to pay for healthcare. I think if you look, I'll give you a good example from, from, from my own background. So I, after high school, I went out and drilled water wells. I lived in, in Marlboro and I had health insurance. I had health insurance through the company. I started applying to schools, applied to CUNY. I was going to go via Pell Grants. CUNY didn't offer, City, City University of New York, they didn't offer health insurance for the students. So by taking that step and going to college, I had to give up my health insurance. For me, that was a very tough decision to make. My mother had died of cancer at age 33. As a, someone in their 20s, I was inc very nervous about what would happen. This runs in my family. What if something happened to me? Where would I be? How would I be able to pay for it? And it was almost something that I said, maybe I would just don't go to school just so you can remain on a health insurance plan. And this is something you see across the district. I think your story is the story of so many small business owners here in our community. I talked to a couple here in Kingston who have exactly, they own their a small business here. They pay the $700 a year penalty because the, the best health insurance plan offered to them would cost them $200 a month. And then the deductible is $6,000. So you're paying $200 a month 
only to be able to then, when something goes wrong, somehow come up with $6,000 to be able to pay for it. So I think the way you can address these issues is by doing the health, let's take it, start with healthcare. Do it, do it in a way where you don't have these situations. That's why I'm a Medicare for all person, because everyone should have the ability to ha ha access affordable healthcare. It should be, I believe it's a right, not a privilege. And by doing a single payer system, everyone, it, it, you're not gonna have to make those decisions. Maybe I can't work for Dustin anymore, I wanna go work somewhere else, but and the reason I'm gonna do that is because I can get better healthcare than, than Dustin gives me. People aren't gonna be making those decisions on healthcare, they'll be making it for economic reasons. And the last thing I wanna see is less young people going to school for the same reasons I almost didn't go to school because they'll lose their health insurance. Or people not wanting to come work for you Someone who's working maybe at a Dollar General, but has a real passion for music and wants to come work for, work for you. And they're saying, I don't want to lose my, my, my health care. Even more specific, there's this borderline between, and it's not in my particular situation, but lots of friends of mine. They've gotten a raise and then, then had to pay more a month for health care to where they now make less because of the raise they've got. And they have to work more because of the responsibilities they got with the raise. Yes. Is there something economically that, that could be done as a congressperson that could stop that kind of gap between wanting to, to move up in, in a, any kind of job and also not wanting to be penalized by it? Let's take – one thing that single-payer will do is take away the whole, the whole idea that you have to get health care through your business. So you can really – you don't have to worry about the changing levels of income to be able to access health care. I do, however, I am someone who believes in a progressive taxation system. The more money you make, the more responsibility you have to give back. I do, I do believe in that, and that's why I think we need a system where the wealthy pay their fair share. If you look at where the rates were when Ronald Reagan took office to where they are today, we've given huge number of tax cuts to the wealthiest Americans, and who is going to have to pay back this enormous – our national debt is now $20 trillion, bigger than GDP for the first time since World War II. Who's going to have to pay for that is my generation. We're going to have to figure out a way to somehow pay that money back. And it's because we've given away so much of, we've given that away to the wealthiest Americans. So I do believe in a progressive taxation system. So if you do make more money, you should pay more in taxes. But I don't think that the access to healthcare should change whether you're in a different income bracket. It is every American deserves the right to healthcare. We are the only industrialized nation in the world that doesn't do this. And, and we spend the money already. We spend 18% of our economy on healthcare. We're 37th in results. $10,000 per year per American spent on private health, health insurance. In New York 19 alone last year, we raised $2 million on GoFundMe pages to pay for healthcare. So this is, this is where the problem lies, is let's get the, let's get the profit-making incentive out of the healthcare system. So it's about the patients rather than just making sure shareholders uh, make more money. All right. And that actually, that speaks to this other question and and the topic of young people kind of answer this but they're targeted most as far as taxes healthcare costs high college loan interest payments and everything else is all really burdened on this that's upcoming generation and people that are just becoming adults what can you do as a congressperson to help specifically people just getting started in life and all the cost of living is very high an average apartment in Kingston is about $890 a month on top of all of your other like college loan payments or insurance costs and everything else, what can be done to, to lower that burden on people just starting off and specifically young people? 
And that's, I believe, such a great question for New York 19 in, in specifically, as I was talking about this with Melissa earlier, and, and you know, we've seen so many young people who've grown up here leave this community and not, and not come back. And I do think we do have a real affordability crisis here in New York 19. In some ways, I think we're victims of our own success. Kingston has come roaring back since IBM left in 1994, finally shut their doors. Uptown Kingston, you see what's happening in Uptown Kingston? I think it's great. What's happening down at the Rondout? I think it's great. What's happening in Hudson, where Warren Street went from plywood of, of 15 years ago to the beautiful art galleries of what it is today? I think it's great. But what has happened as a result is we've lost a, a, the ability to attract and keep middle-income Americans and families here in New York 19. I've talked to, we were talking about Copake earlier, I was talking to the 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 owner of Catamount, the ski slope out there, he pays a good living wage to his workers. He has nearly 60 workers who work year-round at a ski slope out there. He pays a living wage. None of them live in the town of Copic because there is no housing to for that income bracket. There is low-income housing, and there is housing targeted at second homeowners because that's where the market is. Government. This is another place where government could have a role. Government incentivizes right now the building of low-income housing. If you want to build luxury condos, you better also, in many places, you're required to also put uh, affordable low-income housing units in. We can use those same mechanisms to help communities like Kingston, help communities like Hudson, be able to provide housing that both can keep young people here, but most importantly, keep young people who are only starting out and making $35,000, $40,000 a year. My first salary out of college was $30,000 a year. And to try to find a place to live, you know, you live in a house with five different roommates and it's hard, you know, but I was in Albany and Albany had, there was that, the market was there for that. That market's not here in Kingston. And I think we can work hard as in, on the, on the federal side, the federal government has the department of, of housing and urban, uh, uh, the housing department who can be putting a lot of money into these things and helping incentivize that growth. Thank, Dustin, thank you so much for making the time to come today. I'll, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop by and uh, your, your, your store. Absolutely. Thank and you. so okay. we'll see you again soon. All right. Hi. Hello. Nice to meet you. I'm Marlene Alfieri. I'm an advocate activist. I'm part of MUFO New York down in Gardner. And I actually have a really, I think it's a simple question. Done some reading on all of the candidates. I read yours, and I know you're from Rifton, and you are you were or are a Bruderhof. I'm not clear on that. I come from a progressive church, and I just wanted to know what is your stance on LGBTQ persons, and how can you help and support them as a congressional candidate and beyond. Well, th first, thanks, Marlene, for making the time to come up uh, from New Paltz today. I also want to thank the work that you've done, as well as Deborah Clinton and Glenn Gare, the whole Move Forward New York team has been doing, working overtime to pave the way for the this to make New York 19 go blue this coming November. So thanks for all the, all the work you've been doing. My parents are members of the, uh, the Bruderhof community over in Rifton. It's where I grew up. When I turned 18, I decided to leave the Bruderhof communities and go out on my own. And, I, and that's exactly what I did. I went out and drilled wells down in, in Marlboro, eventually went, went to college. While I respect my, my upbringing and the values that I learned, I had disagreements as well, including on the woman's right to choose, which is something I strongly support, and also on L, uh, the rights of LGBT Americans. And when I went to, and worked in, in the governor's office in Albany, I fought for those very issues. In early 2011, no one thought that New York could legalize same-sex marriage through the legislative process. If you remember, every other state was doing it judicially. 
People said New York will never be able to do this legislatively. It's too tough. There's too many Republicans in the state Senate, all these things. We fought very hard for it, and I was proud to that, be part of that administration that did pass marriage equality for all New Yorkers. And I come from a family that were that they didn't believe in that, but I believed in it very, very strongly. And it's something that I was proud to fight for. It was my proudest day in, in state government when we passed that law and it was signed into law because it made a difference in people's lives. I think it was not about necessarily the marriage part, but about the equality part. It was a signal from government that no matter who you love, you are equal in the eyes of the law. And to me, that is what the role of government is, is stepping up when you have discrimination in society, when you have Americans who are or discriminated by our laws, and making that right. And so I was proud to, to do that in the governor's office. I also was proud to work on to try to put Roe v. Wade into state law. At the time, a lot of people believed that Hillary Clinton was going to be president and that we were going to have another liberal justice on the Supreme Court and Roe v. Wade was never under threat. I have a Google alert set for Ruth Bader Ginsburg's name to the, now because the, I hear these retirement rumors. I get very scared. Can you imagine what would happen if Trump gets another shot at putting someone on the Supreme Court? And I would, if that happens, I think we'll really see uh, the threat to Roe v. To Roe v. Wade. And as a member of Congress, you have my word. I will continue fighting as hard as I can to protect a woman's right to choose. I will stand up and fight against what the Department of Justice has done uh, to roll back the protections for many LGBT Americans, many of the enforcement actions that President Obama put into place in, in, in the Department of Justice. Sessions has gone and, and rolled back in terms of the protections against housing discrimination, workplace discrimination have been rolled back, and I will fight as hard as I can to put those into law. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Hi, I'm Matreya, and I am the host, I guess you could call me, of my video blog, Eye on Politics, I as in the eye in your face. <laughs> Well, Matreya, thanks so much for, for joining me on Spotlight 19, and I look forward to joining you on the Eye on Politics whenever, whenever you'll have me. So, what makes you think you can beat FASO? That's an excellent question, because beating FASO has to be our top priority for this coming November. I'm running a completely different type of campaign. I'm going to every single town in New York 19, all 163. FASO, and I've heard this from Democrats, Republicans, Independents, no matter how you feel about his, his politics or policies, he hasn't shown up. He hasn't been around. People, I was in Kinderhook on Friday night. I had 75 of FASO's own neighbors show up to a town hall that I organized that was just 1,000 feet from his office. This is a member of Congress who has completely turned his back on the people of this community. We have had members of Congress from this district who were Republicans, Chris Gibson, we were Democrats, Kirsten Gillibrand and Maurice Hinchy, who made a point of showing up as much as they could in our communities. So I will beat FASO by showing up in every single community because he has been absent. I also, as someone who was born and raised in this district, as someone who has real government experience here in New York State, I think I give voters a real option to choose from where they can pick someone who knows the issues of this community, who's going to the communities, who understands this community because they grew up here, but also has under understands the issues we face because they've worked on these issues here in New York State in a government capacity. So I believe that the I have the energy, the passion, the enthusiasm to take that message to from Calicoon to Cooperstown to Copake, and that is how we're going to win this race this coming this coming fall. Or tell us more about Ion Politics. I think we would like to... I think the Spotlight 19 listeners would like to know maybe more. 
Beyond Politics is my video blog. It's a collaboration between me and my dad. I write out the answers to the questions and he edits. Some of our past episodes have been about the Women's March, the Not My President's Day, that sort of thing. Exciting. And where do you go to school? I go to school at High Meadow okay. in Stone Ridge. Yeah, of course. Right down 209 here. Mm-hmm. So. I get this question all the time, so I'm going to be able to ask you this as well. How old are you? I just turned 12. <laughs> That's excellent. I'm so happy to see uh, how involved you've been, and I can't. Please invite me anytime on on IF Politics. I will. Thanks, Matreya. Thank you for having me. Hi, Gareth. My name is Melissa Weiss. I'm Kingston born and bred, and I'm the founder of Momentum Strategies. Got a few questions for you. So. Uh, my first one is, you talk a lot about Maurice Henschey. Um, I think every time I've seen you speak, you've, you've talked about his campaign and his legacy. My question is, have you spoken to his family, and do you have their blessing uh, in this run for Congress? Uh, so I grew up, when I grew up here, uh, Congressman Henschey was our congressman, actually first was my state assemblyman in Albany, and then was our member of Congress. And I remember him coming and visiting uh, my family, my family's church, uh, multiple times. I remember going to New Paltz when he stood up against the Iraq War, when the entire Democratic Party was on board with the uh, Iraq War. Maurice stood up for our community and said, absolutely not. And that type of being a bold progressive, but also being able to win in a tough republic seat with many Republicans is really a, a model for New York 19. And I think myself and many of the other candidates running, we see uh, Maurice's example as something that we can well, try the best we can to live up to. I was uh, able to, I, my condolences go out to his family after his, his loss this, this past year, and I was able to attend the, the wake, um, the wake, his uh, services here, where I spoke to some members of his family and con- con- uh, conveyed my uh, condolences, but I don't believe that uh, they are supporting any, that they have supported a candidate in this race so far. I have not asked for their endorsement um, as part of this race. Okay. Uh, next question. You worked for the governor's office for quite a few years. Um, have you, after leaving the office, as you've started this run for Congress, have you received uh, any anything along the lines of donor lists? Has the governor instructed, you know, his allies to support you? I, the the donors I've called have been and have supported me are people who I've known, who I've worked with, and who want to win back this seat. But I have not been given donor lists. I have, the, to my knowledge, no one has directed anyone to 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 give to give me donations. So no. Does that include Christine Quinn? Christine Quinn has not given me any money. But was she instructed by Cuomo to? To kind of rally for you and hold a fundraiser for you. No, I've known Christine since our fight together for the marriage equality here in New York, where she was the speaker of the city council. She was an uh, important ally in our fight, and that's where I knew her. And when I decided to run, I called her up and said, I'm going to run. She said, excellent, Gareth, go for it. Uh, here's my advice for my run. She had run in a very crowded primary when she ran for mayor. So she gave me a lot of advice and said, how can I help? And I said, Let's do a fun evening together and get people together, and we'll we'll keep building support, and we'll celebrate the 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 rights of, for LGBT New Yorkers that we fought for, and so that's how that came together. And I was very proud to to have that event. Thanks. Uh, my last question is foreign policy. I noticed on your website it's kind of devoid of foreign <laughs> policy issues, um, specifically on uh, the issue of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. 
Uh, I know Trump a few weeks ago made the announcement that he was relocating the embassy. And there was an uproar among Democrats, including many of them who had voted in 1995 to actually relocate the embassy to Jerusalem. And that includes Marie Sinchi. Can you talk a little bit more about your stance on Jerusalem and on peace talks? Sure. Uh, I think people, I believe in the two-state solution. I think we have many people recognized, I recognize Jerusalem as, as the capital of Israel. I was privileged to travel over there uh, a couple years ago with the Schusterman Foundation and meet with both Israelis, meet also with Palestinians in the West Bank to talk on, on both sides of the issue. And that's only convinced me more about the need for a two-state a two solution. I think what Trump did, and whether you know you, we believe that the embassy should be in Tel Aviv or in Jerusalem, that how, the way in which he did it was wrong. It was done very quickly. It was done in a matter where I don't think our allies were necessarily completely on, on, on board with it. And I don't think the way in which it was done was helpful for to advance the two-state solution. So I, that is why I criticized the way it was done. But the U.S. Congress, as you mentioned, has recognized uh, Jerusalem as the capital. We all recognize um, Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. And, has, and so I don't think necessarily the decision itself was bad, but the way in which it was done was, was wrong. Well, cool. I realized I have one more question. Go ahead. Uh, can you talk a little bit about your stance on the Iranian nuclear deal? I believe that Iran has been a, a sponsor of international terror and that they have funded uh, terrorist attacks across the Middle East and other, other parts of, of the world, and that part of the nuclear deal was to help ensure that Iran would never have a nuclear weapon, which I believe is incredibly important. The leaders of Iran have said that their, one of their goals is to destroy the nation of Israel. Iran, since this deal has passed, I don't believe that they've necessarily withdrawn or rolled back some of the rhetoric they've been using. There still have been funding uh, terrorist organizations across the Middle East. I supported the deal when it happened. I support the continued enforcement of the deal. But I also support the U.S. Congress also must continue to be very strong on Iran and make sure that even though we are trying to keep them from developing nuclear weapons, we must also, I believe, through the sanctions process, make sure that they're not funding terrorist organizations across the Middle East. Hi, Gareth. How Hello. are you? I'm uh, Christine Wopat, and I live in Copic, New York. I've uh, seen a lot about Reclaim New York, and I'm, uh, it's, it's a very amorphous kind of thing. This group comes into local communities and teaches people how to be parts of government or to run for government. Could you explain to me what you know about it? Well, hello, Christine. Thank you for making the drive down from Copic, what is that, an hour at least? Yes. Near, right? Well, thanks for making your way down, down here to Hurley. Reclaim New York is funded, from what I have read about Reclaim New York, it is funded by the Mercer family, uh, which, as we know, has been big backers of uh, Steve Bannon's Breitbart Enterprise as well. And from what I can understand, the goal of Reclaim New York is, is really an attack on local governments here in the United States and here in, in, here in New York, in New York State. They have been getting citizens together to come file these freedom of information. Hi, with now, to come file these freedom of information requests with local governments. A lot of local governments don't have an attorney on staff. They don't have the ability to respond to dozens and dozens of dozens of requests for information for uh, these requests for information. And it's been gumming up the works of local government. 
And then what they've been trying to do with this information is to mislead members of the public that local government and state government is not working for them and is extraordinarily corrupt or extraordinarily inefficient, misleading the local taxpayers to create that type of anger against our, our, our local municipalities. I think it is the the perp that what's behind this is they're driving a, they're trying to make sure that we cannot advance our agenda on the local level that they're trying to gum up the works and make government work much slower much more inefficiently to get people angry and worked up about our local government and I think it's 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 tragic to see that in our communities and it's important to recognize it for, for what it is not trying to recla reclaim New York is, is not trying to reclaim anything it is a attempt by the Mercers and Bannon to to really infiltrate our local government. Is there a reclaim Indiana? Is there a reclaim Montana? I mean, I just seen reclaim New York. Is this just a Mercer Faso thing up here? So I think it actually goes beyond just New York 19. I think there's other parts of the state where we've seen this. I don't. I can't speak to whether there's one in Indiana as well, but I, cause I'm, I'm not. I'm not aware. But I think there are. This is an effort by wealth, by very, very wealthy GOP funders. Mercers give a lot of money to John Faso and his campaign, and to call into question, really call into question our democratic uh, institutions. And that's something that I think they believe will help bring out vote for Republicans and help and help further question our local government. So. I've attended several events here in the community to stand up against Reclaim New York with um, Joyce St. George and others who, and Michael Kink, who have been leading this charge, and I will continue to do that. Thank you very much. Thanks for making the time to come down from Copic. We'll see you soon up on the, uh, in the Oblong Valley. Yes, and good luck. Thank you very much. Great job. Thank you. My name is Emilio Geronda. I am an attorney in Kingston. I'm a lifelong area resident. I was born in Newburgh. I've lived in Gardner. New Paltz. I live in Kingston now. I lived in Albany and I lived in New York City. So I've been around the state. Uh, I'm also active with Citizen Action. I'm a big part of uh, Fazo Friday, which is every Friday from 12 to 1, since we're plugging our own stuff. <laughs> uh, if anyone would like to come, we would love to have you. We have enough signs for a small army. So. Can I bring my trumpet to play in the Tin Horn Uprising? Absolutely. And, you know, a shout-out to Tin Horn Uprising, too. They're amazing. They really make things happen for us. Uh, so I'm kind of new to politics. I mean, at my age, I've only, since Trump came to power, I think a lot about what's going on. I'm a deep thinker. My opinion is, and what, what my concern is, that I really think that racial justice is at the bottom of it's the it's the most important thing for maybe for me and for what I think. So I don't hear much from any of the six people about racial justice and not just, you know, that it's a good thing and that it's a moral decision, but what can affirmatively be, be, be done. So that's my question. Well, thanks, Emilio, for making the time to come. And also thank you and the rest of the FASO Friday uh, leadership for continuing to hold FASO accountable for being no-show FASO and for rallying every Friday, hot, cold, snowy rain outside outside of his office. The question of racial justice, I think, is very important, and it's. I was proud to stand right uh, right there on Broadway in Kingston. I think you were there as well, Milo, after the Charlottesville uh, incident happened, and we stood with Citizens Action with our whole community saying. 
this type of uh, white supremacy that we, the white supremacy and the attacks we saw down in Charlottesville has no place in the United States, has no place in our community standing strong. Racial justice, I see it as it goes even be, it goes, it infiltrates, there are so many racial inequities in our society today, in our education system, in our housing system, in our economic system. I look at the success that Kingston has experienced over the past decade or more than that. I see uptown booming, but I have my office in Midtown, and I see whereas parts of the city are, are coming back stronger than ever, there are parts of the city which still are really struggling. And I see, I see injustice in, I see injustice in, the, in the way we have approached economic development where parts of our city have been left behind. And that's something, as a member of Congress, I'll work as hard as I can to make sure that the, the success, the economic renaissance of our community isn't just limited to parts of Kingston, but to every single ward in Kingston. It's not just limited to Warren Street in Hudson, but also is, goes to Columbia Street in Hudson. I think it, it goes, if you look at the relationship in the United States between police officers and the citizens that they serve, we have seen far too many African-American and Latino men who have lost their lives as, re, as a result, who lost their lives in incidents where maybe someone in that situation who was white would not have lost their lives. And I would support from the federal level funding for the tens of thousands of police departments across our nation to help with training, to help make sure that our police departments look more like the communities that they serve. I also am outraged at at what Jeff Sessions and the Department of Justice have done with the private prison industrial complex, whereas President Obama had worked so hard to make sure that he was using his pardon power and his power of clemency to help give many individuals a chance to start over again, to help make sure that we weren't using private prisons in the United States. Trump has done the opposite. Private prisons, once again, are something that people are investing in. And I was proud to work for an administration here in New York State that recognized that as crime has gone down, we have we should be closing prisons. Prisons should not be an economic should not be just viewed solely as an economic generator, and we should be working to make sure that our criminal justice system focuses on rehabilitation, not necessarily on incar just on incarceration. So I will work on those issues as a member of Congress. Something that I believe very very deeply in. It's something that I believe also affects the, the education system. I, from traveling to this district, I've heard the concerns of, of, of parents in our communities that we have an education system that often determines outcomes based on zip codes, where if you're born into a poor community, your chance of success is much less than someone who might be born into a wealthier, in a wealthier zip code, and the parents might be able to afford to send their child to a private school. So in to address those inequities, which often fall on racial lines, we need to invest in our public school systems in a way that we haven't been doing here in the state and, and across the country. So you will have my voice for that in Congress, and I'll do whatever I, I fight as hard as I can to address those disparities. Okay, great. Good answer. Thanks, Emilio. Uh, the only other question I have is, how does one get into Harvard? I went to City College for my, for my undergrad. Public college, thanks to thanks to Pell Grants, thanks to TAP Aid, became the first in my immediate family to earn a four-year degree, which I was very proud of. After working in the governor's office, I had I wanted to go to law school, continue to my education, become an attorney like Sasha is, and I had the opportunity to go study at Harvard Law School. I worked as hard as I could to to get a good LSAT score, which 
started very low and worked as hard as I possibly could to, to get to where I needed to be. And it probably is a matter of luck, to be honest. There's, I know a lot of very well-qualified people who, who apply, and so I consider myself very lucky. Yeah, I wouldn't even think that I could get into Harvard. I, mean, I don't think it hurts to try. Yeah. Well, obviously not. <laughs> I guess just one more thing on that. Do you think being in Harvard, people will be able to attack you as an elite? I think I did what every parent would want their child to do growing up in upstate New York. I worked as hard as I possibly could to after high school, worked as hard as I could to put myself through college. I wanted to come back and serve my community and work here in New York State in public service and in government. I went, got a job in the governor's office. When you work on a farm, you have to wake up very early in the morning, around 5 a.m. Governor's office liked me because I woke up at, I could get up at 5.30 a.m. and come to work. As we know, Andrew Cuomo, it can be a pretty hard-charging boss at times, and so I worked as hard as I possibly could in that office, and then worked as hard as I could to get into a good law school. So I think I did what every parent would want their child to do in upstate New York. And what makes me rare in that, and Melissa rare in this as well, is we came back. We came back to our communities, and we want to serve our communities. So I'm someone who's worked a minimum wage job in our community. I know the struggles of living without health insurance. I'm a product of the public education system. A number of candidates in this race have written themselves very large checks, and if I wrote myself a check, it would probably bounce. But I think that makes me a little more relatable to the average family here in New York 19, where the average income is about $50,000. So if someone wants to attack me on that, they can, but I think it would, it would not really resonate. All right, great. Thanks. Thank you. You're listening to Spotlight 19. Now we move to our interview segment with Saja and Gareth Rhodes. So today we have back with us Gareth Rhodes, who is running as a Democrat for New York 19. And he was actually our first candidate back in May of 2017 that we had on the show. Welcome back. Thanks, Justin. Thanks, Saja. Thank you to Withnell for, for having me again. It's great to be back on Spotlight 19. Oh, thank you again for being here. So I was actually listening back to our interview back in May, and I encourage all of our listeners to go back to episode four, I believe, and listen to that first, because it really gets into kind of more of your background. And today, we're here today to kind of dig into the issues. But I will give you one softball question. So we left off at our last interview with you telling me that you're going to be putting a lot of miles on your car because you were traveling. And since then, you've started this roads trip where you're traveling around to all 163 cities and towns. That's what I understand the gist of it. Yes, we have a Ford 1999 Winnebago. We're going to all 163 towns and cities in New York 19. And we have been traveling across the entire district. We did a town hall meeting in Kinderhook on Friday night. More than 75 people came. And it is the strongest contrast with John Faso, who has been repeatedly criticized for failing to do town hall meetings, failing to make himself available to his constituents. So this is exactly the opposite approach. Listening to the people of this community, and I have said this is not just a campaign approach. This I would do this every year once in Congress travel to every town in the community because I want the, I believe the ideas of the people are the ideas that I want to take to Congress. Sure. And how many uh, towns are actually left? Like how much, how much more do you have to go to make sure you reach all of the 
places here in our district. So we've done now 78 towns. We, I count it only as a as a trip. If we stop, if we do a real public event, give a chance for people to come and meet me so they have advance notice. So we've done 78. We have many, many more on the calendar planned. If you visit my website, garethroads.com slash slash roads trip, you can see a full calendar of events coming up. We have a, at least seven or eight this coming week and we'll have seven, eight, eight, eight more the next week. So we have many, many more on the calendar and I'm looking forward to seeing so many more of you out there. Great. Uh, so the NRCC has already started its attacks. And for those that may not know, that's the National Republican Congressional Committee. And their attack against you is this tried and true one they always use, which is actually incorrect for you because they're calling you a carpetbagger by virtue of the fact that you voted in Cambridge, Massachusetts in 2016. If a super PAC launches a uh, an ad that accuses you of being a carpetbagger, what are you going to do in terms of strategy to combat that? Well, the New York Times did a story on this race and it compared a number of the candidates running and it said, quote, my, my roots in the community are, quote, beyond dispute, which is true. They are beyond dispute. I was born and raised right here in New York 19. My family goes back generations where my grandfather was a janitor at the New Paltz High School. And as I travel to all 163 towns in this community, people ask me, where are you from? And they love the fact that we have a candidate running here who has those deep roots in the community being born and raised here. And let's not forget that Representative Faso moved here to run for office. He had never lived in this district before he moved here to run for state assembly back in the 1980s. He grew up on Long Island, went to school in Washington, and then moved up here to seek elected office. So I'm happy any day of the week to compare my deep roots in this community with Representative Faso's or anyone else's. So another thing that you've been pretty vocal on since we last met and that has been in the news more and more is the Me Too movement. And you actually issued a press release uh, criticizing John Fazzo for attending the swearing-in ceremony of Steve McLaughlin, who's been accused of abuse. And this is pretty telling because this week we've seen this White House, the controversy of the week, since there's one every week, is uh, this Porter scandal where, again, it was... uh, abuse of women. So my question to you in that context is, in light of Me Too, should you win? And as you're handling your campaign, what safeguards do you have in place for women in your workplace? And what safeguards will you maintain in Congress? And what will you kind of continue to do as a society, continue to have this discussion about sexual harassment in the workplace and recognizing when women come forward? When women come forward, women are to be believed. We must start with believing women and encouraging women to come forward with their stories because it takes courage. It takes women come forward often in the face of public ridicule, perhaps people downing them. So we should believe their stories and hear their stories and then do something about it. And the reason I criticized Representative Faso for attending McLaughlin swearing in is because he didn't make any statement on a extraordinarily troubling story that had been in the news that just the very day before that, where a former staffer had come forward with, there were photos in the newspaper of a violent assault on that female staffer, which troubled me very deeply. And I believed it is the role of a member of Congress to stand up and say, we can't have this type of behavior in the community, it must be investigated. 
And moving forward, as a member of Congress, I would make sure that we block the use of public funding to cover up and allow members of Congress to use taxpayer dollars to hide their actions and to hide any type of harassment in the workplace and just use the taxpayer money to cover it up. I believe that it's very important that we take those steps. My campaign has a harassment policy in place that where anyone on my campaign, if they feel in any way uncomfortable, can go to an outside person, person who's not at all affiliated with the campaign, with a complaint. So we have a real process in place to make sure that uh, nothing along those lines could happen. And I think that's what's needed also in, in Congress as well, is you need a, a policy on office sexual harassment where women or men feel comfortable coming forward with their stories and don't feel like they're bringing their stories and they might not be believed or they might lose their jobs as a result. So we need to have a culture where people feel comfortable coming forward with these stories. What about here in New York 19? There are victims of domestic violence. What are some of your plans for uh, women here in the 19th district that you would be serving as a member of Congress? As a member of Congress, I would work with our local community organizations that support victims of domestic violence here in Kingston and here across Ulster County and New York 19. Many of these organizations do receive federal funding and do receive to allow them to operate. And I would make sure that the, the, the federal budget continues to keep that aid coming because these are really important organizations for helping victims of domestic abuse Helping other, uh, helping other victims of, of, of crimes to recover, to rebuild their lives, and I would support that in Congress. I also strongly believe that we need here in the United States to pass a law that says equal pay for equal work. Here in the United States, women make 85 cents to a, to a man's dollar for the same job. We need to pass a law that says if a woman and a man have the same job, a woman should receive the same salary as that man. And that type of discrimination has no place in the workplace. And I believe, Sajra, that that would actually help also address the epidemic of sexual harassment in the workplace, where women feel like they are not in the same positions of power as men are, even though often they're doing the same work. And it would help balance the power dynamics in the workplace, where these men who are in positions of power feel like it's okay to engage in this type of behavior, which is wrong. And then women feel scared to come forward with their stories because of these power imbalances. Equal pay for equal work, I believe, will help with that and help make sure that women are compensated properly for the work that they do. So you mentioned the budget in your answer to that question. So over the past month and a half, there's been a budget crisis in Congress now twice. And this past week, John Faso just recently voted for an extension to the budget bill and his rationale for voting for it, despite that it increases the deficit, which is something he's supposed to be staunchly against. And despite the fact that it doesn't include a deal for dreamers, justifying it through saying that it strengthens our military readiness. If you are to get into Congress and you have a similar situation, which is likely to happen if the president stays in power and there's a split Congress, how will you strike the balance? So this this budget agreement that came forward had important measures to fight the opioid crisis, had important funding programs for other domestic for other domestic initiatives which are important. We spend in the United States today more money on our military than the next seven nations combined. Spend more than $600 billion a year. And this is money that is being that is being spent that otherwise could be spent on helping our local towns rebuild their aging infrastructure. 
It could be spent on helping train public school teachers and helping improve after-school programs and helping things in our community that we really need. The Iraq war, when all is said and done, is going to cost us $6 trillion over 40 years. We are spending this money overseas where we really need this money here in our communities. So seeing this budget resolution, which continues to give more and more money to the military-industrial complex, and adding that to the national debt, which keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger, we're just kicking the can down the road to my generation. My generation is, are going to be the ones that are going to have to figure out how to pay for this. When John Faso ran, he said his number one issue was the federal debt. Now that he's a member of Congress, it has only gotten bigger. The deficit has only grown. So either Representative Faso is completely complicit with the problem, or he's highly ineffective. He's, he has to pick one of those two, because under his watch, the, the debt and the deficit has only just continued to skyrocket. So you mentioned the opioid uh, crisis in response to that last question. So this week, John Faso uh, pushed part of a bill that um, actually prevents the import or strengthens preventing the importation of synthetic fentanyl and other types of opioids that people are getting online and through markets that they are shipped here from China. And I believe that's something he's going to use when he's asked about what he's actually done about the opioid crisis. Uh, how do you intend to kind of shift the narrative or what do you have as a rebuttal to him to say that he's not doing enough? Well, Saja, I believe that Democrats, Republicans, we need to set politics aside on the opioid issue because this is something that is killing teenagers and young people in our community. It's killing older people in our community. It's a crisis that we can't play politics on. Democrats and Republicans, we must come together to do something meaningful about this. And what troubles me is the vote that Representative Faso took on the Trump Care bill, which would have cut $800 billion from Medicaid. Medicaid is the number one source of funding for opioid addiction treatment. And with the, those cuts, it would have had a devastating effect on families right here in New York 19. Sullivan County is number one in the state for opioid prescriptions per person. Green County is now number one in the state for opioid deaths per capita. This is a crisis affecting our community in real ways. I hear heartbreaking stories out there, both parents who are relying on Medicaid to try to pay for these treatments, but also parents who aren't eligible for Medicaid who are trying to pay for it. The costs of the cost of naloxone, the cost of the drugs that are used and the injectors that are used to treat this have in some ways become unaffordable even to our local first responder organizations. So this we have to put away politics on this one. I think the bill that uh, FASO that you that you mentioned earlier is a good it, it's it's a step in the right direction, but you can't just support that bill and then go in and vote to cut hundreds of billions of dollars from Medicaid. We needed a coordinated bipartisan effort to, to fight this crisis. Uh, sure, well said. Um, and another thing that John Faso did, and I'm focusing on the things that he did throughout the week because I think that um, what he will do when this election actually happens is point to the, all of the things he's done when a lot of constituents maybe who aren't as involved at this point um, will take him for his word. And he can, despite the fact that to us, he might seem absent and you're going around to 
across the district to make sure your presence is known. But um, there are a lot of people that aren't following the election as closely, obviously. But um, he's going to say, you know, I'm I'm working. I am working on the local level because he actually helped um, the Pine Plains Central School District this week to um, get back some tax tax fines that the IRS had imposed. So when John Faso refers to these local issues that he has actually addressed, how will you make sure you can effectively call him out for you know not doing the same sort of job that you would have? As I traveled across this district, I have sat down with town supervisors, members of the town boards in towns across all 11 counties of New York 19. And the complaint I continue to hear is that John Faso has not been a partner to them. They have not been, the federal government has been working against the interests of so many of our communities. The federal government, they've talked about an infrastructure bill now for more than a year. Our towns face some of the oldest, oldest aging infrastructure in all of New York. Over 90, many of our towns have, have water and sewer pipes that are over 90 years old. And they're saying to the federal government, fix our pipes, fix our pipes. Because if this aren't, if you're not, don't have a federal infrastructure investment here, this is, we're going to have to back, we're going to have to fund the cost of these repairs on the local taxpayers, further driving up local property taxes and further causing the, 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 the further, further seeing young people move out of upstate New York. So this, the fact that we haven't had an infrastructure bill, the fast, fact that FASO has been absent in so many of our communities over the last year and is not listening to the issues. I talked to, I talked to friends in Greene County in the Catskill Mountains who are furious with FASO on his vote on, uh, for his votes on the environment and for his statements on the clean power plan when these are issues that will really have an effect here in our community. I talked to parents whose children are suffering from the opioid epidemic. And not only is Washington not helping, Washington is hurting. So I don't. I think that Representative Faso, because he's been absent from our communities, just isn't hearing these concerns and therefore isn't, isn't working for the community. But what about those voters that are going to say, well, I just heard from Faso and he did these concrete things. So how are you, you know, I have that person hasn't been following the election so closely and hasn't been keeping tabs on their congressman. How will you make that distinction? A member of Congress's job is every time a constituent calls, you should be working day and night to help them address those issues. And to the extent that any elected official is addressing those issues, that's a good thing. I believe that because FASO has been absent, there's dozens and dozens and dozens more of those issues that have gone unaddressed because he hasn't been working and serving this community. And as a member of Congress, I'm going not just to all 163 towns in my campaign, I'm going to go to every town as a member of Congress because I will be hearing more and more and more of those issues and will be addressing more of those issues. And by a product of me being there, I'll be able to take those concerns, take those needs to Washington and get them done. All right. We're going to move to the quick, quick answer session because I think we're running out of time, but I want to get to everything. You talked a little bit about local taxpayers and one of the answers to your questions. And your government experience after college is mainly in a Governor Cuomo's office, and he is not well liked in, up here. Uh, you see signs on people's lawns that say repeal the SAFE Act. I understand that that was actually passed when you were 
possibly working for him or it was probably um, being talked about at that time. So how are you going to convince voters up here that blame Andrew Cuomo for a rise in their property taxes, whether it's founded or not? But the general sentiment in New York 19 seems to be in opposition to Governor Cuomo. John Fassa was the member of the assembly for, I believe, 18 years or so and talked nonstop about a, about a property tax cap. And they were unable to pass a property tax cap for all his time in the assembly, even though there was a Republican governor in office. When I worked in the governor's office, the administration that I worked for actually passed a property tax cap, actually helped slow the growth of local property taxes here in this community. So my record on helping local property taxpayers, I will absolutely put next to John Faso's record. When we were working on the property tax cap, John Faso was a lobbyist in Albany. And as I travel across this community, I'm proud of my government experience. I am proud to have stood up and fought for marriage equality for all New Yorkers. I'm proud to have stood up and fought for a fair living wage for all New Yorkers. I am proud to have fought to put Roe v. Wade in the state constitution, an effort that I wish would have succeeded given what's happening in Washington today. I am proud to have been part of the administration that said no to fracking in New York State. I am proud of my record. And as I crisscross this community, no one comes to me with those concerns. People come to me with concerns about what's coming out of Washington, the concerns that Washington is taking away their health care, that Washington is allowing the environment to be polluted, that Washington is going after public schools. The anger that I hear in the community from the voters of this community, from the people of this community, is directed at John Faso, it's directed at Donald Trump, it's directed at the policies coming out of Washington, which are impacting their everyday life. And I have plenty of my own disagreements with Governor Cuomo, but I am proud to be someone who was born and raised in this district and then was able to serve this district and serve my home community while working in government, the only Democratic candidate in this race who has ever worked in a government capacity here in New York State. Do you actually support the SAFE Act or what would you tell a voter who doesn't support the SAFE Act and has a repeal sign in their yard? I have a common sense approach to gun safety laws, which is if you want to purchase a gun, you should pass a background check. Firearms should be stored safely in someone's home so parents feel comfortable sending their children to go play in someone else's house. I believe that our laws should not allow for the sale of fully automatic military-style weapons. These are issues that 95% of gun owners can agree with. The SAFE Act had some issues with it, but it also made it a Class A felony for someone to murder a first responder. That is something that I believe many people agree with. The SAFE Act said that if you are dangerously mentally ill, you should not be able to purchase a firearm. I think many people can agree with that. But there were other provisions that did not make sense, and that's why the courts have struck some of those provisions down, and why the legislature has updated or passed a memorandum of understanding to prevent some of those parts from taking effect. So my approach here is common sense first. What works and what doesn't? I support the Second Amendment. I know from growing up working on a farm that a gun is a tool. Having livestock, a gun is a tool for farmers. Here in our community, where there's not a lot of cell phone service, where there's a number of state prisons, people feel safer with a firearm behind the door. I completely get that. I support the right of responsible Americans to own, to own firearms. So turning to the primary, all of the candidates seem to have very similar platforms. That's one of the reasons we're here today, because 
it's hard to distinguish because a lot of you agree on a lot of the major positions and a lot of the major policy pieces. So why should it be you and not the five others? Sasha, you know, I've been here in, in the studio. I've been traveling across the district and I'm different from the other candidates in, in several ways. First is my real roots in this community, born and raised, grew up in New York 19 and a real working class background where after Kingston High School, I went out and got a job drilling water wells. I worked minimum wage on the weekends to make ends meet. I worked as hard as I could to get myself into college, a public college, became the first in my immediate family to earn a four-year degree thanks to Pell Grants. That working class background sets me apart. In addition, I'm the only candidate running who actually has worked in government here in New York State, a real record of public service in our state, in our community. When I travel to these towns in my Winnebago, this isn't my first time in these towns. I was there, Saja, after Hurricane Irene, where I was working with our small businesses and our farms and our homeowners in Prattsville and Phoenicia in Margaretville and Fleischmann's, helping them get back on their feet. And I'm also running a completely different type of campaign. I'm, I am not able to write myself a large check, so I've had to rely on $19 for New York 19 contributions. I'm proud to be the leading low-dollar fundraiser in this race, the leading number of donations coming from this state, and that is what my campaign is all about. The grassroots, New York 19, and that's what separates and really sets me apart from, from my competition. And in the event that you don't actually win the primary, will you support the other candidate who does eventually win? Absolutely. We will be back next week with Tiny Town Hall series featuring Pat Ryan. And we will also have a in-depth interview with Pat. So until next time, keep up the good work, spread the good word, and keep the faith.